Hello, and welcome to RPG Unlimited, a podcast about tabletop gaming. My name is Emmeret, and I'll be interviewing players, game masters, GMs, game designers, developers, and content creators for their unique views and processes when they play and or create tabletop role-playing games or content. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking with Tim Vaughn. They are a game creator, and if you would like to check out their work, you can find them at aeronautsrpg.com. Should I get started and tell you a little about myself? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, My name is Tim. I am a game designer. I'm also a musician. Um, My day job, however, is software engineer. Uh, I'm 27 years old. I am non-binary. I live in the Seattle area. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh for my education. Awesome. What was it like going to Carnegie? It was pretty cool. Uh, A lot of the people there are huge nerds, which jived well with my whole deal. it's kind of a combination school that has a really good acting program, but also like a really good computer science program and a really good arts program and a really good music program. So I met a lot of people who had very different skill sets um, and very different interests, but uh, a lot of them liked role-playing games. Awesome. So, sounds like it was a really, really good environment overall just to even be in. Yeah. I would say that it, it really gave me a lot of opportunities to try new things with role-playing games, especially um, to experience a lot of different play styles uh, and general like values around, around gaming. That's pretty awesome. Um, how did you get into t- tabletop role-playing games? Well, um, as a kid, I have an older sister. She's about three and a half years older than me. Um, And she would always have her friends over uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. And I could, like, stand nearby and hear what they were doing, and it sounded really cool and fun. And I extremely, extremely wanted to play with them. But um, I was like... 10 and they were like 14 so they were very not into that idea um so i ended up you know i think they were actually playing AD&D, advanced dungeons and dragons and i went out and bought myself a copy of dungeons and dragons 3 3.0 because i thought if i learned like the next one that i could join them when they got to that um, of course, that didn't work, uh, so I sort of taught myself to play, but didn't have anyone to play with. And then when I was at uh, Sunday school, funnily enough, I'm, I'm not a very religious person, but I met some friends there who played role-playing games, and one of them, uh, his mom, was their GM. And so that's sort of how I got started. It's a pretty cool start. I've heard of quite a few people, actually, lately that I've spoken with where their first experience was with one of their parents. And I mm. think that's, I think that's really awesome. And I kind of, I kind of wish I had the same experience. Uh, what was your experience like? 
Um, so my first one, I was about 15 and I was at my best friend's house and we were organizing a game between my best friend and her older brother and some of her other friends. And so mm -hmm. we all rolled up characters, kind of went over a loose session zero. Mm -hmm. And that was that. <laughs> Did not get another chance to seriously actually get into a game until roughly five years ago. Oof. That's a long delay. <laughs> it's a long, a lot of planned games that never took off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was nice um, that the friend's mom was doing it because she had like years, like decades of media literacy on us. And so could craft very like interesting stories that seemed totally new and like whole cloth to us. And I, I think I played with another friend's dad at one point. Um, and I remember as an adult realizing that he was literally like reading three books at the same time and kind of just like pulling them together to make his campaign. <laughs> um, and that was fun. And I like I'm, I'm happier for it. Like, I'm glad that I got to experience this feeling of, oh, hey, that's a cool new thing that I've never heard of before. Uh, and I get to be a part of it. I get to interact. That's really awesome. Um, if the last one that we'd put a lot of work into getting together had gotten off the ground, it would have been based around David Gimmel's Icewind Dale books, which mm. are a bit different from the rest, but I, at <laughs> least I'm fairly certain it was Icewind Dale. This was over 10 years ago now. <laughs> wow. Age. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> that's, that's a long time. It is. It is. And I mean, ever since I did actually get into it, it's been... It was every weekend for about a year and a half with that first campaign, and then we split into a couple different ones, and then I found myself in like four campaigns, and then I had <laughs> a period roughly a year ago where I had a game every day of the week, and that, I could go back to that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I wish, I wish I could do that. I do not know enough people who are willing to run a game <laughs> for that to happen. Ah. <laughs> Just get out there more. There's uh, loads of people out there, especially when it comes to streamed ones. Um, mm -hmm. I know Scraticus has a game four days a week, but it's several games a day. It's like three or four games in the wow. day that they run. Yeah, um, they run it in seasons, and it's it's really fun. They explore a lot of different uh, systems, and yeah, you might want to cool. reach out to them sometime. Actually, yeah, I could look into that. Yeah. Um, so you're one of the creators working on Aeronauts. Please tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Aeronauts is a brand new tabletop role-playing game that I've been working on with some friends from CMU um, back, starting back in 2012, I think. Um, maybe even earlier than that. That's like the earliest folder in our Google Docs uh, drive is from, it says like 2012 meeting notes and everything has been archived into there. Um, but basically we were originally pitched by my friend Matt Glisson, came up to a club that I was part of and said like, hey, I'm looking for people who want to help me make a role-playing game. Um, I will basically want to make a game where being where you can be the engineer on an airship and, and have it be fun. And 
my interest was piqued because that sounds like an interesting setting. Uh, and also, like, I had been sort of flexing my baby game designer muscles, uh, sort of house ruling D&D and reading a ton of articles on the Alexandrian. And I was like, hey, I bet I could do that. Uh, and then my other friend, Lynn, uh, is also, like, really close friends with Matt Glisson. And, like, we just we got together and we started having meetings pretty regularly and working through various concepts. Um, but to give you the the pitch, um, it's a post-apocalyptic world with diesel punk airships, isolated nation states and towns, dark ruins haunted by monsters, and an all-consuming hallucinogenic mist that permeates the countryside. Uh, our core design principles are: the GM is a player. The game should be exciting, surprising, and fun for them too. Um, we want to distribute creative labor, so players are allowed and expected to contribute details to the world of the game constantly, using a mechanic called discovery. Um, and then we also want to have cinematic and creative resolution of danger. So we have a mechanic called improvise, which allows players to describe pretty much anything their character might try to do in combat, um, and it gives the GM a set of basic effects that they can then combine and rearrange to represent that action. So if you've ever been like, I want to swing across the chandelier and stab that guy, this system will let you do that pretty easily. It's really interesting. A lot of the main concept of the game, Until You Hit the Mist, is really similar to one of the games I run on my channel. Oh, so really? Be... <laughs> the Mist is pretty important in this setting, so I'm not yeah. too worried. <laughs> yeah. Um... What we have that takes up roughly the same spot is Sky Shards. Uh, so in this mm -hmm. world, basically what's happened is several times in the last 10, 15,000 years, they've had these um, impact events of extremely magically charged comets, basically. <laughs> and when these things impact, they really mess up how magic works. It's happened three times, and the latest one, which is the one that I GM for, mm -hmm. uh, happened roughly five years ago in the campaign that I'm running. Oh, cool. And technology at that point had reached the point of space travel. And so oh. story-wise, you've got people stranded in space because they can't land because what had eventually happened in this world was they had figured out how to use the existing sky shards that were there mm. to power everything. Mm. <laughs> well, the new ones that have landed severely impact the ones that were existing. So these people can't even land. They get near the planet and their ships malfunction and like people have seriously died in space because they got near the planet trying to go home. It's uh, it's geez. sad. Um it's a mix of retroverse and mm -hmm. Dark Matter by uh, Dark Matter is Mage Hand Press. Uh, Retroverse is mm. Lasers and Liches, if you've been following that at all. Mm. Um, Not really, but uh, I think I saw you mention. Did you interview one of the designers for it recently? Yeah, uh, Chris cool. Locke. Yes. Um, I also interviewed one of the big heads for um, the Mage College. Eventually, I would like to talk to Mage Hand Press, but. They're not on the mm. docket yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, cool. 
What has your experience as a game developer been like? I have had... Well, it's interesting, because I'm not sure whether to call my experience like unique or extremely commonplace. Um, but for me, it's been very nights and weekends. Like, I, I have a full-time job, uh, and so sometimes we have long, long gaps between our meetings. Um, because I'm also meeting with these people who are three hours ahead of me, time zone wise, uh, and we're trying to meet like after work or on the weekend. And it's, it's really rewarding. Like I, I love what we've created, but it's so slow. <laughs> like <laughs> we're lucky if we get like 10 hours of work done in a month. Um, but it's been awesome to see in our more recent playtests, like we're, we're pretty close to the end um, of development, how much people love what we've made uh, and how it's been able to draw people who've never played a role-playing game at all into the hobby. I, I recently ran a game of Aeronauts for my sister and my parents. My sister, of course, is, is very experienced. You might remember her from earlier, she is the reason that I got into role-playing games, but my parents had never, done anything like that before they they had some concept of improv like they watched snl right um okay that's a sketch show whatever <laughs> anyway uh but they were so good at like figuring out what felt dramatically and narratively appropriate and and contributing to the story and since the mechanics pushed them in that direction instead of keeping them away from it um it really just was easy for them to pick up so that's that's awesome. That's like all I want is to see people have that opportunity to explore storytelling with a, a group of friends. Do you feel that some systems don't really encourage that as well as they could? More on the storytelling uh, aspect. I think, I, I definitely think so. Um, I think it is sort of dependent on your GM because I think that a GM that wants that to happen can make that happen in any system. But I'll say that a system like D&D, where it's very prep-heavy, there's sort of an implication that the GM is going to do all of the creative work up front, and that as a player, your job is mostly to interact with the, the setting that they've created um, and, and decide you know, pretty much exclusively details about your character. So it's hard to say, like, I don't know... You walk into a room, you walk into a room, and like it's it's burned out. What do you find there? In a game of D&D, the players will all look to the GM and say, well, what is in this room? Um, in a game of Aeronauts, they'll roll dice, and based on their success, um, they'll get to establish some of the things that are in this room. And maybe there's something that the GM is expecting them to find, and, and they can say, like, hey, there's something in here that one of you will want to find. Who wants to find it? And they can spend one of their details to find it. But the rest is up to them. So someone could be like, I find an old burned-out camera. Um, and is that important to the story? It, unclear. It probably will become important. But um, I found that in games where the creative load is placed more on one person, it's impossible to to have those kind of emergent story details um, come from the players. I, I think they can still happen, and if the GM is confident in working in like backstories or in providing opportunities like that, it's it absolutely works. But it 
certain systems lend themselves more to that. I can see that. Um, I know my first experience was a lot more of, okay, you get to a room, you roll to search it, the GM tells you what you find there. Um, yeah. But I've also experienced, uh, it was a Ryotama system where, <laughs> all right, you're going into combat, you pick, each person picks four items that are in this area, and <laughs> it's all one use, and then once everything's been exhausted, assuming it gets exhausted in the fight, then we do another round of pick four items that are in this area, which <laughs> was really fun. Remarkably similar to our mechanic. <laughs> Oops. Happens. Happens. Yeah. Good ideas will often be found in more than one spot. It's true. There's not a lot that's new under the sun. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is just getting into tabletop game development? I would say, uh, gosh, okay, I want to add something. I had, I had something I was going to say, but um, look around, see what's already out there, uh, and, and play some random stuff, because there are so many cool ideas, and you might worry, like, oh, if I, if I infect myself with other people's creativity, then my originality will go away, but that's not true at all. Um, Creativity feeds creativity, and every creative work is a response and an incorporation of what came before. So just play stuff, try stuff, read stuff. Um, the more that you experience, the more that you can add to your own creations. Uh, the second thing that I would say is make small things first. Uh, you want to get an idea for what your design values are. So what is important to you in a game and it's easiest to see that when you make something so small that it either has like one of your design things or none of them and then you can easily say like i like this or i don't like this uh, and once you've built up the vocabulary of what it is you like in a game it's a lot easier to make something larger um, i'd also say it's worth taking the time to analyze games that you like to see what it is that you like about them. Uh, there's this great paper that I always like to reference uh, called MDA, uh, or Mechanics Dynamics Aesthetics. Um, it was a Northwestern University paper about game analysis. Um, and it's one of the most helpful tools that I reference when I'm designing. Um, I sort of use it backwards. It's it's mainly meant for analysis, but you can kind of cheat if you're careful. <laughs> I'm not sure that using it isn't in an unintended way is necessarily cheating. It's using no, it unconventionally. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, and you echoed a thought that I'd heard from another creator about creating small first. Have you ever participated in a game jam? Yes. Um, so part of my background is as a, a software engineer, and when I was first uh, learning how to do programming and stuff, my main interest was in making video games. Um, so back at, at college, I was part of this club called the Game Creation Society, and we used to have these little two-week contests uh, where there would be some kind of theme, and you would make whatever game you wanted, and then the whole club would vote at the end to decide like who had made the best 
exemplar of that theme, I guess. Um, and to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of participation in this, but I really enjoyed it as an exercise in motivating me to to make something and to make something quickly and to not worry about making it perfect. Um, they were video games in this case, but I think it still helped me think through what my design values are or it sort of helped form them in the first place. Like, I really value simplicity. I really value people being able to sit down and start playing your game right away without needing to process a lot of extra information. Um, and, and that's something that I learned from making small games. Um, you have very little time to capture the attention of the player uh, and get them to stay and, and play it through. So you kind of need to make that the most of that time. Sounds like a really good way to look at it, though. Um, I know one of the things I've heard recently from a lot of people is that it seems like a lot of games aren't designed far as where organization of information as well as they could be. Uh, mm. Is that something you've seen? And how would you improve that if you were to take an existing system? I definitely agree with that assessment. Um, information presentation is often like one of the the afterthoughts of game design, uh, particularly with, with tabletop role-playing games. And I think kind of what it comes down to is um, that layout editing and, and skills like that are sort of undervalued. Uh, there are a lot of really talented people out there making comics and textbooks and anthologies and what say like whatever um that have like a really good eye for how to present information uh and they don't get hired enough <laughs> i think that if i was going to change something um in the industry more broadly it would just be to make it sort of standard practice to to get an editor to do your layout for you Sounds like a pretty solid direction to move there. <laughs> what is one of the biggest things you have learned since you started working on Aeronauts? This one is uh, a good question uh, because it's something that I've wrestled with a lot. Uh, while designing Aeronauts, I'd say the biggest thing that I learned is that complexity is a balancing act. Um, the more rules that you add, the higher the barrier to entry is for your game, because there's there's more to learn, there's more to understand before you can say that you're proficient at it. Um, if you're making something that you intend people to play campaign style, which is what I my intent is with Aeronauts, you need the richness and depth of mechanics so that it doesn't get stale after like 40 games. Uh, but you also want people to be able to take a look at it and decide it's worth figuring out how to play. Um, so you really have to walk this line of like it, it needs complexity, but it doesn't need to be too complex up front. It needs to not be too complex up front. We've cut and refined so many mechanics that at this point we probably could have made three games out of stuff we've cut. <laughs> so it's. It's really tough, but um, I, it's a lesson that was hard one. 
That's also a good question. Um, I think that a lot of lore up front is similarly very intimidating because it, for the same reason, if in order to play the game, you're expected to know what's going on uh, and it's hard to figure out what's going on, that's going to be something that makes you put the game down um, and stop trying to learn it. So something that I really tried to do with Aeronauts is instead of presenting lore as like, here's a travel guide to our world or like here's a bunch of big informational blocks for you to memorize uh instead i tried to sketch out the setting um the my co-creators and i wrote a couple of like short stories actually uh each of which is just a vignette inside of the larger world but if you think about the game from the perspective of your character you don't actually, like, your character isn't going to know everything that's going on in the world, especially since we're talking about, like, these isolated city-states. They're going to know exactly what fits in their experience. And it's pretty easy to sketch out something like that in a two-page short story. So um, I think it's also something that you need to consider when you're designing a big, like, campaign setting. But... Uh, you can definitely mitigate the cost of a large amount of lore by finding gentler ways to get people into it. Okay, I can see that. Um, I know one of the things that I found daunting when I first got into D&D was I was at the table and a lot of times the experienced players would be talking about this setting or that setting, and I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and then going and looking for these books and realizing... There's decades worth of lore here. Yeah. How am I ever going to follow any of this? Thank you so much for wikis. Because yeah. it's the quick, dirty version of everything, and it gets you what you need to be able to keep up with those conversations. That's true. Um, I'll say that is something that I kind of like about indie um, tabletop role-playing games, is that none of them can rely on decades of lore. And so they all have to, like, let that be something that happens as part of the game. Um, I, and so I it's, think it's there easy might, to sit down and start them. I think there might be, I'm not sure if it falls under indie still, but I think mm. uh, Cyberpunk 2020 might fall as one of ones that might be indie <laughs> that still can rely on decades of lore just because of how long <laughs> Mike Pondersmith has been working on that. That's fair. That's fair. Um I'll speak. I'll say more specifically the like small press ones. <laughs> okay. So to the newer up and coming people, learning people, exploring. Yeah. I think that's fair. Your website mentions that you are in talks for a video deal. Is that for Aeronauts or another project? Is that something you can talk about at this time? Uh, yes, it is for Aeronauts, and I can talk about it. Um, it's not exactly a deal because I already, <laughs> uh, I'll start from the beginning. So as I mentioned before, one of the things that I really wanted to include in the Aeronauts book was short fiction. Uh, I saw this back in Mage, the Ascension, uh, a book published by White Wolf when I was in high school. And I thought reading short stories in the setting was the single coolest way to learn that setting. So I was like, okay, we have to do that for sure when I make my own game. 
uh, I had this friend, Tom, who is a screenwriter in LA, and he does spec scripts and you can hire him for whatever kind of writing you want. And I was like, hey, can you write some short fiction in this setting if I give you like the setting document? Uh, and he agreed to and started writing this story. In the meantime, his friend, Kate, uh, who is a producer and actress, was looking for a sci-fi role that she could star in um, and was sort of like, uh, there's nothing around, uh, all these roles are for men, blah, and like, if only I could make something myself. Uh, and Tom was like, but wait, <laughs> you can. Um, and so the two of them got together and they pitched me a short film based on one of the stories that Tom had written. Um, and they were like, it'll be about 10 to 20 minutes, here's a budget. And I was like, huh, a movie, a movie about my role-playing game. <laughs> that's, that's a crazy idea, right? And then I said, yes. <laughs> um, and one of the things that's really nice about my day job is that at that time, I could afford to make that happen. So it's been... I forget how long exactly. I think they started filming January. They did filming January of last year. There was some pre-production before that. And they've been in post-production for a while. Um, things are a little bit slow because they have like one person doing sound, one person doing visual effects and stuff. But I've seen a couple of cuts and it's like way better than I thought it was going to be. I figured, oh, you know, I'm throwing my indie filmmaker friends a bone. Uh, they're going to make something and it'll be like pretty okay. But it's actually like really shiny and beautiful. And I'm really excited to show it to people. Um, thinking back to, to Mage, how much cooler would it have been to learn that setting by watching a movie? <laughs> Uh, so hopefully it'll be finished soon and I can start showing it to people. I think I can agree with that. Uh, movies, <laughs> while not always the best media for introducing someone to something, um, looking at you, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they can also, they can be really, really strong. You know, whereas the movie that shares the title, Dungeons and Dragons, and very much doesn't feel like it, <laughs> um, I've seen that movie, and I agree. <laughs> Darkness Rising, I think, fits a lot closer to the mark. Yeah. So. Or like Stranger Things, even. Yeah, they're they're strange out there. I mean, sci-fi. It's gonna get weird. It's gonna get weird. <laughs> it's true. Who or what inspired you to start making games? Um. I have always found games fascinating. Um, I love the novelty of learning new mechanics. I love a house rule that presents a fresh take on something old. I used to play a lot of like Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights and um, Project Eternity. I forget what they ended up calling that. Pillars of Eternity. Um, I played a lot of the like top-down fantasy games. Uh, I even wrote my own mods for Neverwinter Nights. I like tried to write my own adventures in their engine. And I think ultimately what pushed me to start designing my own games is that I wanted to capture something 
that D&D 3.5 couldn't quite reach for me. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about the indie developer community back then, so I kind of just started doing it myself. Um, and the, the thing that I wanted was just like a little bit more cinema to it, I think. Like I wanted to imagine things a little bit more loosely, a little bit more rule of cool. Um, and D&D, you could hack it to do that for you, but it wasn't the core of the system. I think that would be fair to say about most games that are put out on video platforms. They're not exactly, unless it's a sandbox, they're not exactly <laughs> created for a person to put their own storyline in. No, sure, yeah. So, with the movie thing coming out and with the creation of the project, how has that changed stuff for you personally? was interesting um with the movie it was pretty hands-off like i mostly i had to do a bunch of work to set up like a bank account that the producers could access and i had to make sure that like we had appropriate worker protections uh i had to get forms signed with uh sag the screen actors guild um and there was a bunch of setup but then it was pretty much just like hands off like let them go do their thing kate was a producer and tom was a director and it was just like all right come back to me with a film if i hate it i just won't release it <laughs> um so it was a little bit intense for a little while and then it mostly leveled out with the game it's been you know we've been developing it for so long that we've kind of got a routine of what our our meetings look like they'll usually be like a saturday morning for me and saturday afternoon for them because of time zones and i'll frantically eat breakfast i'll get onto the call a little bit late then they'll get onto the call a little bit later uh we'll start up a google doc and we'll, we'll start talking about whatever it is that we wanted to work on that day um but yeah i think things are, are pretty much stable now i think i've noticed that as a fairly common thing across all creatives is a difficulty in showing up on time anywhere. We're all really, really... We hurt ourselves. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you what the problem is for me, and maybe someone out there can relate to this. I... have a, the illusion in my brain that the moment I decide to go to something, I will arrive there. And so... I will trick myself into thinking, oh, five minutes is enough time to get there, or 10 minutes is enough time to get there, or 15 minutes is enough time to get there. Because to me, the travel time is like, once you've left, you've, you've met your social obligation, you're on your way. Um, that's not super true. <laughs> it's something I'm still trying to learn. Um, one of the big things I learned with that is when you go to head out, you plan next time right? Mm -hmm. you, you have the planning process ahead of time on when you need to leave. Double it. Always double it, because something inevitably <laughs> comes up, whether you've got to chase after a kid, whether there's stupid traffic, whether you're going to a new place and you get lost. Invariably, <laughs> it ends up taking, on average, twice as long. Twice as long. Until it's <laughs> something you've done, like, 
over and over, and then you can give it like time and a half. Seems like good advice. So how long have you been a content creator? Had you gotten into it before you got into college? Or was that really something that took off there? Yeah, I made a game for those friends that I met in Sunday school uh, back in high school. Um, it was called, it was um, very dramatic. It was called Dramatis Personae, like the list of characters at the beginning of a play. Um, and that would have been like 12 years ago. And I've been creating since then. It's a long time to be going for a lot of people. Um, I know in that time, a lot of people will start and stop and move on to other things just because for whatever reason, their dream doesn't pan out and they have to find another dream. Yeah. My trick is I just have 12, year, 12 dreams, and I'm pursuing them all extremely slowly. <laughs> it's one way to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> what has that journey been like for you? I feel like I've been incredibly lucky. Um, I've had some really great friends, some really great communities. Uh, I've never had to worry about whether RPGs are going to pay the bills for me. Um, I think a lot of indie RPG devs can't say that. Uh, it's mostly been just like a fun journey of learning and discovery. Uh, but I know that for some other folks, it's like a desperate scramble to monetize so that they can survive capitalism. I don't think anyone actually survives capitalism. <laughs> That's a good point. We we do all eventually. <laughs> Uh, not to bring it down. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> uh, something happy. Uh, Role-playing games. They're fun. Um, what was the first game you got into, and what was that like? Um, I guess it was D&D 3.5. Um, and it was fun, because I'd never played any role-playing games, and I just wanted to be part of that. Rolling dice was fun, and making decisions for this character was fun. I think the first game that really captured my attention in a way that was like, oh, there's other stuff out there, um, was Mage. Um, it had this really cool system in it where you had magic defined as like schools of magic. Um, which, okay, that's not that weird, but <laughs> the thing that you you had in each school was like some kind of rating, one, one to five. And anytime you wanted to cast a spell, you could reference like what sorts of effects corresponded to that level of that kind of magic. Um, and uh, hold on a second. It's... Um, Sorry, someone is dropping something off. Uh, I'm going to a convention tomorrow, and they brought a um, badge for it. And Milk City. Yup. Timing. So, I was talking about my first game that like captured my imagination. So Mage had this system where you had a bunch of different schools of magic with different ratings in them, 
and whenever you wanted to cast a spell, you could freely combine those different schools. And then you had one rating that was just like your general magic power. So if you had like five points in life magic and like five points in mind magic, then maybe you could create like a new living being, but you had to roll really well to do it. Um, but the cool thing to me about it was that coming from D&D &D, where you just had lists of spells, it was all this creativity. It was, you could do whatever you could think of with magic. Uh, and that really opened me up to this idea that role-playing games could be a little bit more fluid. I could agree with that, especially with the magic stuff. Um, I think lists are a great place to start. And it's where... I, as a player and as a DM, I know I couldn't do Adventure League. I can't mm. do those types of constraints. First of all, look at the games that I play in, look at the games, the one game I helped create. Like, that would never fall into Adventure League because there's so much homebrew in that. There's, hello, the world yeah. is homebrew. There's a homebrew magic mechanic that I've been working on, which essentially takes magic and says, alright, yeah, you're a caster. You never know how this is going to turn out, if this is going to be really good or really bad, though, because magic should not be like, <laughs> okay, I either cast it or I don't cast it. No, there should be another end to that where, okay, yeah, maybe <laughs> you cast it really well and it, like, doubles everything. Or maybe... Um. If you're stupid and you do, like, power word kill, and instead of killing your target, you kill your party. Because it backfires. Yeah, you know? consequences. And scary ones, you know. Mm. Something that says, sure, low-level magic, not necessarily scary, might summon something tiny and cute, or <laughs> maybe not cute, but manageable, or higher levels. Dude, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's part of the story on why th that world took so long to development, because there were wars over that stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, think that's one of the really nice things about homebrewing, and, and one of the things that's really hard about Adventurers League is I think Adventurers League kind of, it, it's great because it's an opportunity to play, and it's an opportunity to play with people and make friends. But it's also, it's more about the, the sort of the tactics game when it comes down to it. Um, and if you, if you want to tell a story that doesn't fit with the adventure that's happening there, uh, there's not really room for it. Yeah. Well, me, I kind of look at it a little bit more as uh, your introductory tutorial game. You're new to yeah. this. It's great for that because... It's an environment that the focus is a bit more on the rules, and mm. that I think that matters when you start, because yeah. then you have a strong base to create from. It's sort of the learning fundamentals kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point. What have been some of your highlights and one of your lowlights since you started creating and then since you started working on Aeronauts? Uh, highlights. So this last PAX Unplugged, 
my fellow, one of my fellow co-creators and I ran five two-hour games of Aeronauts uh, at the Games on Demand area booth. What would you call it? Um, games on Demand is basically this group that shows up at a lot of conventions. They're a group of volunteer GMs. You can sign up. Uh, you just have to contact them. And basically, you say what games you want to run, and then anyone can walk up and sign up at the con to play in them. And you usually have to walk, you have to sign up like 30 minutes before it starts. And sometimes it's a group of five strangers and nobody knows each other. Sometimes it's a group of like four people who've played games together all their lives and like one random person uh, and all kinds of combinations in between. Um, but the coolest thing was after we ran these games, we met up to talk about how they went. And we got to see all of the little differences in the details that they established about the story, the different ways they approached the same scenario. Um, it was really cool because like, we had set up this pretty constrained story because we needed it to finish in two hours and we needed it to be relatively consistent for players. But every time it went just differently enough to be like recognizably a different game. Um, like in one of them, there was a raging fire across the floor and these creatures were like jumping through it to attack them. Um, but the creatures couldn't see them cause they'd like messed up the radio tower and, and another one, the creatures weren't there at all. Um, and they just like left and then they, they triggered this radio, uh, transmitter and it summoned all of the creatures to attack their, uh, competitors. But it was just neat to see like how much room there was for creativity and what we had made in a really visceral way. Like here, the same game run five times, totally different ending every time. Uh, and since then I've run like three more in the Seattle area and it's the same thing. It's, it's really cool. It sounds kind of uh, like, especially if it's all being ran at the same time, like running parallel universes parallel side universes? by side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> you saw where it was going, you're like, I see that thought, I see it, and there it is. <laughs> I've I've had that thought, yeah. It it especially because there were pre-made characters and they had like the sort of cinematic title names. They were like, this one's the captain, this one's the gunslinger. And everyone had their own twist on it, like they gave them their own names and pronouns and a uh, little bit of backstory, but it definitely heightened that feeling of this is a parallel universe with almost the same crew doing almost the same thing. It's really fun, though. That's really... I think that's one of the things that gets a little bit more difficult unless you're writing modules for your homebrew stuff. It's a little yeah. bit harder to run something like that and kind of see what the different decisions could be and where stuff could go and the changes. You know, exactly. As cool as that would be to see, like, you have to you you would need to somehow have a fresh party every time and that's tough sometimes yeah i i could see uh, that or write the model hand it out to a couple of your dm friends so like all right we're gonna do like this thing where we all sit together <laughs> in like this one building with our different parties and we run this game at the same time <laughs> speaking of which another highlight for me uh my friend so also the co-creator uh a one of us three um matt glisson and i 
ran a bachelor slash bachelorette party role-playing game um, where one of us GM'd for the bride side and one of us GM'd for the groom side. And the premise was that they were in two alternate realities uh, trying to solve a mystery. And one reality, like each reality had complementary clues. So they were going to need to communicate to figure out what was going on. And then like halfway through, they find a laptop. Uh, it was Call of Cthulhu themed, uh, Call of Cthulhu modern themed. And they're like suddenly able to start chatting with each other. And they do so for a while, just sort of like shooting the shit or whatever. And then eventually they, they realize that the, the details in their two worlds are slightly different. Like one person who is dead in their world is alive in the other world and a different person is dead. And they're like, oh, wait, can you ask your version of that person this question for us? And so just this cool thing of like cooperative mystery solving across universes there are also a lot of physical props. Like, Liston is really good at, at making stuff like that, and it is always a delight to play with him. But uh, just, I always love the idea of let's have two GMs with two parties and then have them collide as part of the game. It sounds like a really cool concept and possibly be done more often. <laughs> I think there's a community episode that does this, too. Um, but low lights, uh, I think the, the hardest moment for me as a game designer was we were doing a really early playtest of Aeronauts and we had come up with all of these different skills that you could have. Cause we were sort of at that time, um, thinking of it like a list of feats. So, you know, if you wanted to build your character, you'd pick like a bunch of different things you were good at. It isn't really like that anymore. But at the time, we just had this big alphabetical list. And we sat down to play test with a group of people. And they took like three hours to make their characters while we were sitting there waiting to start playing. And I felt so bad because I felt like we had failed as game designers because that was like a valid thing to do even though I think it was just this person not really being considerate of anyone else's time. Uh, and, like, I just remember feeling very defeated. Like, we, we had screwed up so badly. We'd spent all this time writing all these skills, and it was just the wrong decision to have them at all. Um, which, like, ultimately the truth is a lot more complicated than that, and, and we made a lot of good design decisions based on the results of that playtest, but it's just something I always think of, is that, that low feeling of like, oh, we really missed the mark on this this bit. Right. Well, yeah, especially if you're designing something that you're hoping would be able to be played on convention floors, it needs to be something that people can get into <laughs> character creation and have it completed really, really fast. But, I mean, yeah. that's also down to the person. Some people just can't do that fast they put so much thought and effort and backstory yeah. into characters you know and you know a lot of times it's people that have experimented and tried and have really discovered their thing for playing is full fleshed out characters yeah so. and this is why like well, our character creation system is a lot faster and more streamlined now but we still prefer to have pre-made characters at conventions because it's just like it reduces that problem to one question, which is which of these people do you want to be? 
um, which is a lot faster, even if someone is like very interested in the, the minutia. Do you guys switch up your pre-generated characters for different cons? Um, not so far, but I think for different adventures we will. So like this adventure works well with this set of characters. And in order to show off like different ways that you could run this game, like the one that we ran at PAX Unplugged is very focused on like the ground adventure. So like running around, exploring a ruin, etc. Um, but I I want to write a module uh, that is more about the air stuff. So um, we would want to emphasize different aspects of the characters. So like the gunslinger isn't as interesting in, in the air, but the ace is, you know. I think that depends on the type of airships, you know. When I <laughs> that's, think that's uh, steampunk airships, I think of like it's a pirate ship with uh, a plumpetit attached up in there, and that, that a gunslinger well, could totally work there. <laughs> that's the problem. We're we're diesel punk airships, which I uh, I feel like the best way to describe this is just to direct people to go to the website. <laughs> I do have that link too. I should hold on. I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so go check it out. We got nice art. That's something that we paid people to make because we pay people. I noticed that you had a really clean looking site overall, and that's something that can be really rough for some people to manage. Because especially yeah. especially over time, when I think of websites fifteen, twenty years ago, <laughs> and look at websites now, I'm like, it's it's mind blowing. It really is. We we have two things going for us here. One is Squarespace. Uh, not I. I hope you're not like sponsored by a different like a competitor or something. But uh, that's been just a really nice way to handle uh, managing the site. And then the other is we have a layout editor Zora who does great work for us. They also made our uh, business cards, which I don't really have one on me at the moment, but maybe I can show you in a bit. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was, a bit, that was a bit serendipitous there. <laughs> Squarespace, it's really good. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I know for a lot of people creating websites, it, it's a huge part and it's something that I feel a lot of people could use a lot more knowledge around. And if you don't, find something like Squarespace and use it because it's it's, it's there. It's, yeah. If you don't have the money to pay a web developer to put your stuff together and you don't have the know-how yourself <laughs> or the time, you know, because yeah, sometimes you have the know-how at the time. Yeah, yeah. I started working on coding for my first website a year ago. And if I could get the hosting for that, yeah, I'd have that up. It's gorgeous. It's sorry to all the other generators out there, but I think it's a better thing because the one thing I've noticed that you don't have with Squarespace or Wix or any of them mm. is the option to add in sidebars. Mm -hmm. And sidebars can be very, very powerful. So. That's fair. 
I'd, I'd like to have that option. So someday I'll get it done. Someday. <laughs> as, it's all oh, coded did... long as I get it before they switch out away from HTML5 and CSS3. They switch away from that and it's like, okay, time to learn and redo and bash my head for a year. <laughs> I did get, by the way, my partner brought me over one of our business cards, so I'll just hold it up to the camera. Um, but these are pretty slick. They are square, which um, it's memorable mm -hmm. and I love it. <laughs> but some people have given me shit about it. <laughs> I mean, you've got people with pearlescent cards out there. You've got cards that are magnets. You've got cards. I think I saw someone with a card that was a circle before, and that was, what? You could do that? <laughs> I mean, of course That's you cool. could, but nobody like has. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's good shit. It is. <laughs> um, no, I... And that's one of the things. What have you found has been the biggest challenge far as promoting Aeronauts since you've started working on it? Oh, geez. I have to say, my own anxiety. <laughs> it's, uh, it's rough, you know? Um, it's hard to like stand up and tell people that you think the thing you've made is worth their time. Um, but it's been really nice to get the validation of people actually playing it and saying like, yes, I enjoyed this. Uh, and not just because you are my friend, because I'm literally a stranger at a convention. Uh, we had like 15 out of 17 people sign up for emails from us, which I think signing up for an email is pretty much the biggest endorsement you can give someone <laughs> because email. <laughs> Um, but I think that the challenge is very much just like spreading the word, um, getting people to check it out. Uh, I think that demoing the game at conventions has been a, r a really good way to do that. Um, and I'm hoping to do a lot more. I was about to ask if, uh, what you felt was the best way to actually get information out there. And yeah, I, I could see you were demoing because it's... Hey, here's this thing. Here's how it works. You want to play with it? Play with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the only way to really get that hands-on experience that's like, oh, okay, I like this. I want to do more of this. You can see that. Um, what systems have you played, and which ones were your most and least favorite? I've played a lot at this point, so I'm just going to focus on my most and least favorite. <laughs> uh, my One of my favorite systems is actually a super super gritty first edition D&D-like game called uh, the Adventure Conqueror King system, uh, which, like, a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I can see the, like, horrible colonialist themes all over it, but the thing that I really enjoyed about it was it was really lethal, which would sound like a bad thing, except that it meant that all of the player characters that survived or, like, the henchmen who, who rose up to take their place when they died were, like, way cooler. Um, my first character was this paladin uh, who was sort of, like, classic adventurer, like, I'm, oh, I'm going to go in and fight the darkness. Um, and, like, in our first foray into the dungeon, um, 
Adventure Conqueror King is very about like bringing henchmen with you to carry your stuff or fight monsters or whatever. And we got down to this bottom level and we got like attacked by this swarm of uh I think they were called Morlocks or something. Uh, and my paladin goes down immediately. But we he had been carrying this plus three shield that we had found elsewhere in the dungeon. Because in addition to being super lethal, it just hands out awesome treasure all the time. And my like level zero not, doesn't even have a class henchman, Corinth. Uh, she picks up his shield and she proceeded to fight off 20 Morlocks alone while everyone else retreated up the stairs and dropped flaming oil. Uh, and then she gathered all of the treasure alone and hauled all of the treasure and Galvan's corpse out of the dungeon alone <laughs> and back into town uh, and became my like regular character for the rest of the campaign. Um, at one point, she was like level seven and carrying around a quiver full of magic swords. Um, so that was just really fun to like have a character that has this tragic backstory that I didn't write. It's kind of like having a playable NPC. Yeah, yeah. Except then they became my PC. <laughs> I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> it's cool! Um, no, I've had experience with some DMs where a character that was an NPC that was expected to die, the party made sure mm -hmm. that didn't happen. And then it's <laughs> like, well, this is your guys' problem now. Who's going to play them? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a good way to handle it. <laughs> like, no, th th this was not how this was supposed to go. There was every hint and direction not to say this character, and you did it. So, <laughs> while I have That's to rebalance everything, you get to juggle this extra thing because <laughs> that's why i never do prep <laughs> uh, um... i think it, it can definitely be a balancing act with prep you know there are some people who are very prep heavy and that's how they work and there are others that are like no prep whatsoever here's what you need yeah. to know about the world just go you know yep. um i know i'm a I'm somewhere in the middle there. Mm -hmm. um, where we're at currently, I haven't had to do any prep for a while because mm -hmm. apparently it's a bit tougher than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And it's just taken some time to get through this area and hopefully soon, because I can't wait for the players to see what they're actually dealing with. <laughs> um, so they're in this cave system. Mm -hmm. The walls and the floor are perfectly smooth spotless and you hear bats and all this no signs of them though right hmm. outside of the noises you go to the end of these walkways and some of them look like they just in but closer inspection reveals that there is a door there it just perfectly matches everything else you know and they took their time to figure <laughs> out the counterbalance to get the doors open so now you know, they come across the door, they know how to move it. Except for one. It's one that they can't open yet. Um, <laughs> but you've got that. Uh, this last week, they dealt with another layer where, yeah, there's stalactites. 
Someone <laughs> broke off a stalactite from the ceiling. It crashed to the floor, shattered, mm. disappeared. They looked up, and it was back. Hmm. Hmm. This simulation has holes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Or maybe it's something else. You know? Yeah. Um, so That's I can't... I can't wait for them to... it. Well, and then you've got the ranger who did one of the ranger abilities, and also Kender and a couple other things going on, and sensed a draconic presence, but can't pinpoint where it's at. Hmm. And it's like, suspicious. Suspicious. It's like, and just the overwhelming feeling of something being wrong. Yeah. You know, with just, yeah. It's that exciting. Dreaded. Yeah. Yeah. We managed to get um, a fair amount of lewd jokes in despite that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, every party. Uh, yeah, PCs, they love the table talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, to get back to your original question, uh, my least favorite system, uh, I, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that, like, every system I've ever played... A lot of people put a lot of work into it, and I do appreciate that. And and I've I've always had fun. So this is more a question of like, what did I find matched me and my playstyle the least? Um, and for me, it was Dungeons and Dragons Fourth Edition. Um, I like saw what they were trying to do. They they really standardized a lot of stuff, but the take on D and D was way more like a miniatures board game um, than like the kind of game that I wanted to play. Um, Cause I, I kind of find if I have to count tiles a lot, like to figure out distances and stuff, it's sort of tedious. Um, so ultimately that one wasn't for me and, and earns my least favorite. But again, I think I've enjoyed every game I've played. I can't say I've got any experience with fourth edition, but I do paint miniatures and I think there's a, coinciding thing that happened there you know there was mm -hmm. a long period when D&D first came out where you had a lot of production of miniatures mm -hmm. and then in the early 90s that stopped almost completely yeah so um, maybe they were trying to revitalize that part of it I think so I think so um, I've got some Ralph Parthas from 1970s um, I've got one from 1969 but Stuff from the 90s, you just don't find until you hit 98, 99, when yeah. production started kicking in again. And then <laughs> around 4th edition, yeah, you, you see a huge, a huge ramp up. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe it was manufactured that way, or maybe it's just a thing that was born out of necessity for the playstyle for 4th edition. Could be. Probably the answer is some of both, uh, since I think Wizards is like pretty accomplished at the whole making board games thing. Maybe it was just that, like, hey, we can do this really cheaply. Um, we can make a lot of additional materials and, and people will buy them. Um, so. I can see that, because now you've got not just minis, you've got spell cards, you've got. Uh, right. The deck of many for people who want to actually purchase that. Yeah. Um, I can say I'm not the biggest fan of that in games myself, just because what it did to my first game that I will always love, but never get re resolution in. 
<laughs> yeah, it can be quite literally very randomizing. It, yeah, it's it's game breaking. <laughs> it's game breaking. So I'm running a little bit low on time. Do you mind if we go to audience questions or? Yeah, we we can do that. Um, although I haven't seen anyone pop in with questions. If any of you out there do have questions for Tim, though, feel free to speak up in chat, and we'll go ahead and address those. Uh, I think we have a few more we hadn't hit on my list, because we did. Like I said, there were just going to be questions that weren't there. Um, right. So while we wait and see if we get questions from audience. Um, Sounds good. Within the tabletop community, what has your experience been? What do you think has been good, and what do you think could have improved, and what do you think you specifically could do to improve it? It's interesting, because uh, I think depending on what communities you're a part of, like a tabletop community could mean a lot of things. It could mean the fans who play the games. It could mean the developers who make them. It could mean the people that uh, are involved in like actual play and, and streaming um, that sort of create this the secondary content. Um, and I I haven't really been very involved with the creator community a whole lot. I, I mostly just follow cool people on Twitter. I listen to some nice actual play podcasts. Um, and I want to meet more people like i want to get to know more of that community i think that the folks that i have met through like games on demand have been really cool and supportive um and really inclusive uh, of queer identities and um i want to see i want to meet more people like that um i don't feel like super qualified to talk about the community's quality in general um but i think or specifically, but I think in general, an important thing for communities to strive for is cultivating a, a safe and inclusive space for marginalized folks. Uh, and, and what that looks like specifically is ousting abusers and boosting people who are there making the world a better place. Um, I always like to think of the fact that there are so many cool people out there making so much creative stuff uh, and if someone tries to tell you that losing, you know, the abusive savant is going to somehow damage the craft, they're, they're just wrong. There's so many other people out there making cool stuff. Right. So that's, that's my position. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for me, as someone who largely was a player up until recently, and my scope wasn't anything online... I wasn't even aware of, like, anything on that end. I was like, hey, cool, people make stuff that I enjoy and I play. That's cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't thought once upon a time about the fact that there was a wider and deeper community. Um, and I think that speaks a bit to kind of how games are played on a more local level, you know, mm. and just local communities to begin with. Um, I wasn't aware that game shops even existed growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
They did. <laughs> you know, um, and maybe that part of that could have just been parenting as well that mm -hmm. led to the lack of information there. But no, I think that yeah, I definitely agree with the hey, let's oust the horrible people and boost the great people, especially when there is proof that an individual is horrible, and then. Not yeah. not just holding them accountable, but people who are aware of it and kind of yeah. like help sweep it under the rug. Like, yeah, you got to look really hard at those people because they're aware of it and they know that that stuff that can damage a community that there's claimed to love and nurture. Well, this yeah. action doesn't show that. Right. So. Yeah, it's it's definitely the case that. Uh, you kind of need to, you know, whether, whether, like, however you feel about them personally, like, if you feel like they have the capacity to grow and, and experience restorative justice, you still have to take away the, the power, um, their ability to harm people, because that's an important step in recovering. Right. Um, so, like, no matter what you believe about, should they ever be allowed back, you know? you still have to take that step of removing them from the community um, to right. protect the people that need to be protected. Well, and I was going to add in that to a degree, there's only so much you can do on that end to protect people. Um, yeah. You can protect your community by as a community coming together and saying, Hey, we draw a line here. And at this point, this person is just right. not a person we want in this space. But then after that, it doesn't stop them from finding another community. And that's, you know, that's one of the things I worry about when I see something like that. It's like, mm. okay, this community is aware of it. What about other right. communities out there You're that just aren't? Sending them to be a problem for someone else. Quite possibly, you know, which, you know, not our thing, not our problem. Mm. I think at that point, that's where it comes to a more personal hey, not just within your community letting people know, letting yeah. people in your personal circles that aren't in that community, just, you know, yeah. where it may not be as relevant for them, it, it has its space. Like, I think a good example could be, because there's a lot of intersection between cosplay and uh, tabletop role-playing, hmm. I think that is one of those places where sharing that information is beneficial because... That is yes. another very easy group to target. Yeah, so. especially when all of those people come together at cons, you know, like. Yeah. So I definitely agree. <laughs> um, not seeing any questions from chat today, so no quiet. It happens sometimes. So, but, uh... no worries. Thanks for being on my show. It was great having you. And I mean, Steph changes. You get more info in, for, in the future or another project. I'd love to have you on again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Um, and if you would like to keep up with Tim, you can follow him on Twitter at uh, EPS underscore Tavon, uh, that's 
E-P-S underscore T-B-A-U-G-H-A-N. And you can find more information about Aeronauts at aeronautsrpg.com. This has been RPG Unlimited. You can my, find my show here on Twitch every other Friday and on other platforms the following week. See you guys later.